Welcome back to Pro Running News. Matt Fox and David Lippman speaking all about the role of managers in running, a topic I've found interesting uh, basically since I started running uh, over 18 years ago now. And we've become interested in it lately, David. So what are we gonna what are we gonna dive into today more specifically? Yeah, firstly, thank you to Darko Annandale, a uh, listener who sent this question in. He asked about the role of agents uh, and the emergence of running teams, specifically NN running. And we'll talk a little bit more about the managers. Um, we have talked a little bit about running teams previously in our episode two, talking about contrasting uh, the triathlon world to the running world. Uh, I think it was called uh, Where Have All the Rockstar Runners Gone? And we will talk about it in an upcoming episode we're planning on at the Ekidens in Japan. But uh, yeah, today we're talking about managers in running. And I think probably the most important thing to understand is that you, you have to apply to be a manager. You can't, you know, it's not, you know, you or I may actually be able to apply, but, it, you know, John off the street can't do it. So there's some eligibility criteria. Um, probably of note is that you have to have proper experience in athletics, which might, you know, actually discount me. Uh, I have had some, but maybe not enough. Uh, and then there's a bunch of stuff, obviously can't have been convicted of anything anti-doping wise. You then have to apply, you have to pass an exam, which is run only every two years in your local area, uh, you have to have insurance, uh, be registered for four years. So that, that registers you all for four years once you pass your exams and, uh, and applied. And then you can renew, but you have to keep attending training. So it's a really interesting thing. And, and then there's obviously codes of conduct and stuff that exist within there. So I didn't actually know until researching for this episode that you had an exam to pass, but it's um, it's quite interesting. It's apparently multiple choice. Um, and yeah, so that was interesting for me to find out. Yeah, it's certainly not so straightforward. It does take quite some time. Uh, I have heard of, uh, yeah, managers that have, you know, they've had their license expire and they have to sort of do it again. So, yeah, it's, it's obviously a little bit, bit of a lengthy process um, to to uh, obtain a license to be a manager. But what I've found uh, most interesting is basically the question that was sent in by Darko. And it's like, what what role do they really play? And how does, does this relate to the emergence of teams? Because, I mean, I started running uh, in 2000 and well, I would say seriously in 2005 and there was no teams around then. The teams really only emerged. I don't know exactly when the first team emerged, but I would guess probably around about 2015, 2016 is when the likes of Tin Man and Bowman and all these uh, teams started popping up. They didn't all pop up in those years, but you know, now we look at the landscape and there's sort of teams popping up all around the place. Many of them are brand backed, uh, New Balance on running, uh, these uh, ASICs are about to start a team in Europe from what I understand, from what I've been um, told. And uh, other teams are, are not brand-backed. They're just teams like Tin Man Elite, for example. Yes, they have a backing of um, Adidas, uh, but there's other teams that have no brand backing. But yeah, how do these managers relate to these teams and how does it all work? I think that's something that we want to talk about in this episode for the next sort of 25 minutes or so. And yeah, the first question I guess we have in our mind is, you know, well, you answer the first one. How do you become a manager? But what do they actually do? Um, yeah, maybe maybe you could give your best answer to that before I give my best answer to that. Yeah, I think just back to the teams thing. Like, I think back when you started and I was running at a similar time, there were there were squads, right? So it was this coach's squad, and then it sort of morphed into maybe some teams based around, and then you know the emergence of those things. And I think Tin Man's a good example of that. It was originally obviously Tom Schwartz, no longer, but. Um, there was this, it was around him and then it became a, you know, an Adidas back team that then became sort of bigger than Tom and, and Tom is ultimately uh, no longer with them and they have a new coach. But um, that's an interesting thought because I guess you could have a collection of athletes who run because they enjoy each other's company or who are coached by the same person, or perhaps they move there for a coach or perhaps have the same manager, which is really what we're talking about today. And I guess 
that then the question is like what to or, or a combination of these right probably the most prominent um that some of our listeners would know is um mtc melbourne track club which is fundamentally coached by nick Badeau, and all of them as i understand managed by nick Badeau, but he also manages other athletes so you don't necessarily have to be part of mtc to be managed by nick but you know if you're coached by nick you're probably managed by him so it's a really interesting thing there of like what's the um yeah sort of i guess what the how you end up in a squad, but in terms of what does a manager do, there's lots of different roles here from world athletics, but fundamentally there's some things to think about. They, they have to know where their athletes are. They have to help their, ensure their athletes are abiding by the rules. They have to help their athletes get into meets. They have to, you know, help them broker deals and and deal with compensation as well as I understand things. Mm-hmm. What about you? Is there, is there more to it than I don't know? I know, you know, some managers. Yeah, you've covered the big topics. I mean, the big topics are getting sponsorships for the athletes or the teams and all the teams uh, and making sure that they're in the competitions that they need to be in. And there's a big uh, there's a big avenue <laughs> there that we want to talk about around the new rules in the ranking system that I think is really important. So we'll go there soon. Of course, the, the way, in short, the way that you qualify for these uh, national teams now at least in almost all countries, is no longer just running a qualifying time. We've actually covered that in a previous episode about the new rules in the uh, in the ranking system to qualify for the Olympic Games and the World Champs. Um, that actually presents a, a bigger job for the managers, and we'll talk about that soon. Um, but yeah, the main roles, from what I understand, are to secure funding for the athlete or the team in the sense of brand deals and endorsements. Um, they don't necessarily have to come from brands. They can come from uh, you know organizations like banks, I know in triathlon, there's a few pretty large banks that are supporting teams and athletes now. Uh, And, you know, there can also be car companies, car brands. I know that even in running, there's a few athletes from the UK that are sponsored by car car companies. I also know that that's the case in Norway and a couple other uh, countries as well. So yeah, they they need to be able to help the athlete make a living, basically in short, make sure they're in the right races so that they make uh, more money and, and a better living. And of course, the beauty of it for them is that they actually take a percentage of all of these funds that are bought in from brands, organizations, and prize money, and also appearance fees. So managers will typically take somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to, I think it's about 30%. I think normally it's about 15 to 20, but it does vary oh, wow. manager to manager. Yeah, I'm not sure sure 30% is normal. I I have heard of that, but uh, to be fair, I can't remember who that is. But I think it's typically 15 uh, 15 to 20. And yeah, so, but the interesting thing is that it's one of those cases where from what I understand is that I'm I'm just going to bring him up because everyone knows knows who he is and he's had a very successful career. And it's Ricky Sims, who is the manager of Usain Bolt, who also manages, I'm not actually 100% sure if he still manages Farah, but I think he does. I could have that wrong. Mo Farah. And he's managed a lot of top athletes. And he started as basically an assistant to a management company many decades ago. And through one reason or another, which I've never really heard a very clear, consistent story, he climbed to the top and managed to convince Usain Bolt to join the team. And that basically created a snowball effect of all these other athletes that joined him over the years. Uh, there's probably some big names. I'm actually mind blanking right now, but he's had some very, very big names in the sprinting world and the distance running world. And all of a sudden he sort of sits back and is able to, you know, Usain Bolt, I think in his prime was earning in the, in the, I think it was over $10 million a year, but at least it was well into the millions of dollars a year. And when he's that good and that much in demand, he's being offered tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to turn up to a single race. And he's taking 15% of that, of, of that, 
um, which is fantastic for him. But, you know, he he probably deserves that. He probably built his way up to negotiating those deals. But there's obviously managers on the other side of that spectrum that are just getting started that are trying to get a few athletes in their stable that might be, you know, potentially earning ten dollars to $50,000 a year. So taking 15% of that is obviously pretty small scale money, probably not enough for a full-time salary. Um, so, yeah, that's basically what they do and how they make their money and where their incentives are. Their incentives are to take a percentage of the prize money and the appearance fees and the brand deals of the athletes. Am I missing anything there or have I covered most of the most of the time? No, it sounds, it sounds about right. I think one thing to understand and probably that manager you just mentioned is a really good example of this is, uh, and Nick Badeau is the other one, as, as I understand it, is these managers develop relationships over time and then can, you know, like anything in business, having a relationship helps. So where your athlete may not necessarily be high on the list, it's like, hey, actually, I need you to get this person an entry to this race for me because it's my athlete and I, you know, I promise you that they're not going to let you down. Right, it may be a pacing job where they get money for it. It may be something else, but it, you start to have this if you have the right manager. Doors start opening for you, and I think that's really important. Oh, yeah. it, it may provide opportunity for you. So the the hard bit is going from zero to one for these managers. Once you've got one successful athlete and a few successful relationships, things get easier. But it's getting those initial ones, and um, probably the easiest way is to you know, mentor young athletes, help them come through. And then ha- as they start to hit their peak, then you start to have a commodity that people want, and then you can start to develop these relationships. But it's really hard, I envisage, for people. And then, you know, one of the interesting things here is um, one of the, I'm just going to make sure I read this correctly, as part of the gu- the guide for for, um, for managers from World Athletics, it says, uh, so, you know, regulation 7.5.5 is to conduct himself and we won't talk about the fact that it's just himself, but conduct himself in an ethical manner to observe the highest standards of integrity and fair dealing. And 7.56 is to avoid conflicts of interest. Now that's a really interesting, tough thing to navigate because you now have, um, you know, potentially athletes racing against each other. Uh, you have potentially people who are, you know, if you're a coach and a manager, there, there might, be a, might be something to say like, hey, there's maybe a conflict of interest there in that you manage athletes you don't coach like it's a really difficult murky area and hard to navigate and i'm not pointing any fingers at anybody i'm just saying as somebody you know who's you know acutely aware of conflict of interest like that's a difficult thing to manage as a person right we're all humans and that's that's hard mm. yeah that that's very vague isn't it avoid conflicts of interest i mean there's, yeah. no, there's, there's no doubt that a lot of athletes are, a lot of managers are managing athletes that, that have uh have this, are running in the same event and have the same have the same prize money in the line what, yeah. what else could that mean avoid conflicts of interest oh i think um perhaps you know if you've got uh you might have a role with a certain company you might be helping to develop shoes for instance mm. uh you, your conflict of interest may be to force an athlete to sign with them for lesser money like that's a good example of a conflict of interest where you have a an affiliation with a brand and an athlete and they may not be um you may not get the best deal for that athlete that could be an example um so yeah i envisage it being something like that but Conflicts of interests only need to be perceived is the other challenge. Um, so they don't necessarily need to be true. They need to be perceived only. So it's a difficult line to be walking. Um, and I appreciate some managers do a good job of it and, and may walk the lines fine and others may just avoid it completely. Uh, and that would be my tactics, like just to be trying to be as squeaky clean as I could if I went to, to managing, which I definitely won't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't have a strong interest right now either. But um, the, the thing that's mo- interested me the most in the last 10 years is the rise of the social media platforms. Uh, let's call it we're now currently in the internet age and maybe in 2005 we were not, although I'm aware the internet was around then, but uh, let's call it the social media age. 
you know, all these social media companies have popped up between about 2006, 2015, Instagram becoming pretty prominent around 2012, uh, sorry, about 2014, I guess, now very prominent to the point where most athletes would probably spend more than an hour a day on there or more. Um, TikTok, of which I have uh, have not yet had the courage to download because I'm, I'm a bit worried about that one. Uh, I do believe athletes are on there. Uh, in fact, I know they are. And YouTube being the other one that's not really a social media platform, but it's it's something that's becoming pretty pretty important, I think, to to uh, sports, uh, especially running and triathlon. Well, any sport really. And I think what I'd like to talk about for the next few minutes is, you know, these managers that I I don't know too many managers overly well, but I do know quite a few um, to some extent. And they do tend to be sort of born in the 60s, the 70s, some even the 40s, 50s. And they're not, they don't seem to be from small conversations I've had with them or from just looking at the internet. They don't seem to be, and I'm not bundling every manager into this one sentence, I'm bundling um, maybe 70% of them. Now, they don't seem to be overly familiar with, with these tools, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, even Facebook. Um, and I guess we noticed that, Let's link back to Darko's question. He's talking specifically about NN running. We noticed that Elliot Kipchoge has a very good Instagram account. It's very well managed. Um, I do wonder if he knows he has it. <laughs> Side joke. Um, no, of course he does. But it's it's obviously managed by NN. They they do a very good job of doing that. They they post brilliant photos, videos, very inspiring uh, quotes and photos of Kipchoge training and racing. But a lot of the other athletes at NN actually don't really have much going on on their Instagrams at all. So, you know, I wonder what's going on there. And I do wonder also if some managers are um, maybe going to fall too far behind now, especially with YouTube, because I mean, I'm a big YouTube guy. I've, I've uploaded 170 something videos in the last year to YouTube. And uh, you know, I, I'm watching a lot of athletes start their own channels now. Um, triathlon, as we've spoken about before in the second episode, you know, rewind six years ago, I think Gwen Jorgensen was the only one on there. Now almost all the top triathletes have YouTube channels and they're starting to hire their own videographers. So this is obviously a trend going to the future. And so the the managers need to stay on top of this stuff, don't they? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because you have two options is I'm not engaging or I'm going to engage. And if you decide not to engage, I think you owe it to your athletes to then find someone who will help those athletes with it, Um, be it navigate it, be it create the content, whether it's videographers, social media managers or whatever. But I think the reality is we're stepping to a time in the world where this stuff is, is the primary source of advertising. I mean, TikTok and YouTube are the primary search engines for people under a certain age. I don't know if people know that. So they are used more than Google for many people uh, of a certain age. I don't know what the age demographic is. Really? TikTok? Yes. Yep. Oh, gee, I've got to get on there. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so so those two platforms are a good example of this, which is the way the world is shifting, particularly for digital natives, people who are born, say, call it when they got their first phone being an iPhone, right? So you and I got our first phones, they weren't iPhones, but uh, there's a generation a little bit younger than us where the first phone that they received was a smartphone. And that's a really big difference in, in the way you relate to the internet and the world. So I think one thing to realize is that you, when we probably started on social media, you could gain a bit of a following doing a bit of sort of your own work. Now it's more of a full-time job. The level of editing, the level of skills are a lot higher and that's easily acquirable in the world. That's the, the value of YouTube and TikTok, right? You can acquire those skills and they may not be quite as good, but you may still be able to do your own work. It's just a lot of work. And let's be honest, on some level, you have to be good enough as an athlete. So 
I think that the reality is we're going to start to see the rise of content managers as well for these people, uh, you know, people who create content full-time for these athletes. Um, and I think that's important. And I think if you're going to be a manager or if you're a manager that, you know, you probably have a responsibility to the athlete to be at least on some of these platforms and understand what's being said about the races and the athletes and these sort of things, because I think that's, um, that's just such a big part. Like we, you know, people of our age or older will say that, you know, that's, that's the internet and this is the real world. When people who grew up with a smartphone, the real world is the internet and this is part of the internet, right? Like, you know, not being on a phone is part of the internet, whatever's, whatever's happening around it. So we need to understand that's how people are relating to it. And you you have a significant role here, I think, as a manager, be it that you employ someone to run Iliad's uh, social media, or it is that you decide, hey, actually, we've got to push everybody else in and in running to get this. Um, yeah, it's a real tough yeah. one. It is a tough one. And I think the people that are probably around our age, mid-30s, they probably have a bit of an advantage if they go into the management space because they were at school, at university, when these social media platforms were on the rise, they understood them, they adopted them early. Uh, I, I personally know a couple of managers that are that are in their mid-30s and, and I, I know they're all over these things. Um, but, you know, I also know of managers of which I won't, I won't say names, but they're, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying people that are born in the fifties and sixties don't know these platforms, but at the same time, you know, they, they didn't grow up using them. So adopting these things when they're, when they're a little bit older might be, might be a little bit more difficult. They might not fully, because they're surrounded by, uh, in their, in their private lives, probably people of a similar age, I'm just only assuming they might not use it so much. Um, and that's completely understandable. You know, that's, that's, that's the way it is, but yeah, it's, I've, I've found this super interesting because the athletes that are managed by um, uh, managers that are sort of born in the fifties and sixties and, and even seventies, I have noticed a sort of a, a minor correlation between those people not being so uh, um, I've noticed a correlation between that the managers of that sort of generation and those athletes really doing their social media stuff themselves. And, and then there's teams and individuals with managers that are a little bit younger that tend to be helped out a lot more. So like you said, this may be a phase over the next few years. Well, I, I know it's already sort of started in a way where content managers will be hired. Uh, let's go back to Tin Man Elite who love them or hate them. Um, they are sort of in a, you know, in a way leading the game with, with uh, this space because they've hired at least one intern. I think it's even maybe a few interns that just purely work on, on the content. That's what they do for yeah. the team. And the team's, I think only about eight people or 10 people. So it's not a massive team and they've got one or two people working from what I understand. And I could be wrong. I think it's full time. Um, I, I think I saw an intern move to Boulder full time. I, I don't know if it's 40 hours a week, but um, I do know that they're working around the clock to, to, to produce content for Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube for this, for this team. And let's put their results and aside or their, or your opinion of them aside, like they're, they're producing a lot of good content in my opinion. Well, I, I, I'd argue the fact that everybody knows them uh, is, a, is a good example of the fact that um, results aren't as important. I'm not saying they haven't performed because they have, I mean, I think Reed Fisher got top 10, uh, oh, yeah, they've had American some... in New York. They've had some good performances, but well, those Sam Parsons. Been... Sam Parsons ran 13, I think 10 the other day or 13, 11 for 5k. So yeah, yeah. but those, if, let's, let's be clear though, those couple of results, the results of the team have started to get good in maybe the last six to 12, maybe 18 months. 
Prior to that, the results weren't quite there, but they were still very well known. And I think that's the key here is that you can develop a following that allows you to, to then monetize and keep running at a high level to then perform, right? And that, that's where we're really talking about with managers is if you can facilitate deals that get people to a stage where they can train better because they have more financial security, that's good management, in my opinion. If you can get a level of financial security for your athletes such that they can feel safe enough to you know, not have to do whatever, not have to work, or then that's a huge win for athletes. And I think that's the key here. Yeah, for sure. I think that could uh, that could transition us to talk about how much bigger a job they're about to have with this new ranking system, <laughs> because yeah, yeah, I'll let you talk. I'll let you summarize the last uh, one of the last episodes we did about the ranking system over a minute or two, and then we can talk about how much more of a job they have now with the ranking system. Yeah, so episode five we talked about um, you know sort of the changes of uh, the ranking system, but in in short. Previously, it was kind of like run this time and get to run at the Olympics or the World Championships. Now the time has been cranked down or up or made harder to a stage where half of the qualifiers for those things need to qualify on points. And points are a combination of uh, running a time, but in big enough races. And the goal here, is, as we sort of came to the end point of, was we think it's to try and get more people racing at bigger meets, uh, more racing to be seen, right, to improve the product. And I think that's a it's a noble goal and I think it's good. And you start to have people who are performing regularly and trying to perform regularly rather than just flash in the pan. Now I go disappear, do whatever I want, uh, good or bad, be it, you know, tested or untested and then come back. Right. So I think it's good. Um, and I think what that means for the managers now is now they have to a plan the season and then B start executing for the athlete, which is I need to get you into these races, be they area championships or big high profile races or something else. Hmm. Yeah, so that's going to mean a lot more. Well, I mean, what it's going to mean is, is it's, it's going to mean they have to fully understand these rules and go, okay, it's no longer a case of them going, hey, I'm friends with the manager at this Diamond League, so I'm just going to enter you into this race because you've run fast enough over the last 12 months to get in. Now it's actually about completely planning, okay, how does my athlete get enough points to be at the very front of the nation uh, in, in front of their competitors in that particular country to score enough points to uh, to qualify for the Olympics. And that would require looking very closely at the point system and the race and going, okay, well, my athlete is a 13-10 guy. At the moment, that ranks him fifth in the country in terms of overall times. But if I get him in this race, this race, this race, this race, and this race, that are all very, very high, high points if you place well or you run fast, it's also a matter of thinking, are those races normally run in fast times? Is there paces there? In the case of Diamond Leagues, there normally is, but let's assume that Diamond Leagues are maybe out of reach for this particular athlete that I'm just making up. And then they have to think, how do I... It's almost like a, a game for them now. And before, it was just a case of going, oh, I'll put them in these few races and then they'll hopefully run real quick. So it's actually quite a lot more work. And I recently, when I was in Kenya, I'm not going to name him. He's a British athlete that's probably on the borderline of qualifying for a team. Um, I asked him what he's racing soon. Uh, he's an athlete that's run pretty quick over the half, pretty quick over the five and 10. He wants to try and qualify for the five or 10, but he's not on the top three at the moment, but he's close. He's also young. Some people might know who I'm talking about, but um, he's, I said, what races are you running? And he said, I'm actually trying to figure that all out now because I need to understand the point system. And I said, how do you understand the point system? And I asked him if his manager knows. And he goes, his manager doesn't really know. 
And so he sat there for a, quite a while to work it out. And he's running a 3K indoors. And I think it's this month, I think he said. And then he's planned all these races. He's, this guy's obviously quite switched on. And he's figuring it out. Um, but he wants to try and get in the back door. Well, that's probably not the right term to use. He, he wants to try and score so many points that he might even get in front of someone faster than him just because he he played the game. And I think well, that's, that's really interesting. Well, that's yeah. the whole thing is that the, the way the points work is that a time, call it 1530, is worth different amounts in different races. So if you win a race, it's worth a different amount. If that race is more high profile, it's worth a different amount, right? So it might be, if you say win the British, if this guy goes and wins the European championships in a slow time, uh, in a 1530 for argument's sake, that might be worth 1510 because it's the European championships and he won it. So it it actually means that you don't, you don't need to run as fast provided you get enough, you're in the right races. Um, and that maybe speaks to some of these races being more tactical, but also it speaks to championship racing and performing on the day, I guess, which ultimately, let's be honest, who do we want in the Olympics? The guy who's run fast once off or the guy who runs fast when it counts? And so maybe the answer is the second one. And to me, it is, right? I've, I was the opposite as a runner. I could never perform on the day. I could never perform when I needed to. And it took a lot of work for me to start getting towards that, if you can call that what I do now that. Um, but I knew people who, you know, a good example is a girl I trained with. She now plays, she's the captain of the Matildas, the Australian uh, women's football team. She broke all of Sally Pearson's records as a junior and there was nothing you could do to Claire to stop her performing on a day. She was just the ultimate like high pressure athlete. She just, when the lights were on, she ran her best. And like, I was always so in so much admiration of that because I could never do that. And those are the people you want racing these races when they run their best on the day. And maybe another example is Asafa Powell versus Usain Bolt. Bolt always ran well on the day and Safa Powell often didn't. Yeah, that's very fair. I mean, if I was if I was watching as a if I was watching the Olympic Games as an Australian supporter, I definitely want the person in there that's going to race well on the day, not the person that could run a one-off fast 5K when it's when there's no crowd and they're paced with by three of their friends. I mean, that's not I just made that example up. I haven't seen that before. But I'm just saying I I'd prefer someone to be in the race that I know is going to race well on the day. So, and that's why I think these new rules are, are a net positive. I know that there's downsides to them, um, but I think they're a net positive overall. But I think the point that we're trying to make here is athletes have to really make sure their managers know the rules and they, they're going to give them the best chance to qualify. They can't just assume they know them and think, Oh, it'll be fine. You know, my manager will sort it out. I think it's now a case that athletes have to say, the game has changed completely here. You ha- we have to really be on top of this. We can't just pick two races and hope everything's going to work out. Um, the person that comes to mind here, and and I'm not, I'm, I'm I'm sure this guy will be completely fine because he's an Olympic medalist. But Josh Kerr, he I love watching Josh Kerr race. He's and I, and I love yeah, he, I love his behind I love his behind the scenes, um, yeah. you know stuff. He's 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 full of confidence and it's great. I, I wish I wish the entire 1500 meter Olympic final was full of Josh Kerr's, but he yeah, doesn't yeah. race much. He races only a few times, and so and I don't know if that's his plan moving into the future or not. But at least in the past, he has announced uh, publicly that he races. I think it's only two or three 1500s a year and one 5k yep. and one 800. And yep. while he does perform 95% of the time, maybe even more, if he doesn't and he has a few shockers, he could be in trouble. Yeah, um, I think so. I think yeah. that speaks, to, as you said, the changing role of the manager. I think the manager of the future is somebody who can assist athletes in creating revenue streams that are not purely performance-based, so social media, et cetera, you know, endorsement deals, 
all those sort of things, growing the social media following so they have a brand and then can help them navigate systems to make teams to help build that brand, right? And still leverage the relationships that they previously had. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I guess one thing you briefly touched on at the start of this episode that we'll finish off the, the conversation about is, is the is the anti-doping and the whereabouts. Yeah. Um, so if you look at these World Athletics rules and, and got a link to them in the show notes, there is a thing that basically states that athletes need to, well, there are two aspects. Athletes need to let their managers know where they are at all times. And managers have a response, an anti-doping responsibility uh, on behalf of the athlete as well. So basically to summarize it, there's a reciprocal relationship between the two, the athlete and their representative, what they call the athlete's representative, or what we're calling a manager, uh, to be clean and be keeping each other informed about that. So changes to the regulations, changes to whereabouts, all that stuff. That's all a reciprocal relationship. So there is, I mean, we talked about in our very first episodes um, about doping in Kenya was like the role of the managers and whether there was you know anything there. And uh, it does look like they do have some responsibility in this, whether it's that they're instigating it or driving it, or whether it's just that they they need to be taking some responsibility because that's what World Athletics regulations say. Uh, that does they do own some of this responsibility? Yeah, no, for sure they do. Um, I think it's really yeah, it's obviously critical that they. Well, part of that was a little bit a little bit uh, uh, silly in a way to to make sure their athletes are clean. I mean, at the end of the day, the athletes are going to do what they what they want. But um, there was a funny conversation actually about the Peter Bowl case on on the on the on the Inside Running podcast about about this and and the they were saying that the coach um claims that he's never taken anything and they were questioning how does he, how does he know that um mm. I, I I don't know about the outcome of that case that's that's coming soon but uh yeah I think ultimately the the managers need to at least at the minimum make sure that their athletes are um reporting their whereabouts properly because. I mean, I was just in Kenya and I had uh, probably only a week ago now, was it? No, about nine days ago, I had I had a, a small meal at Wilson Kipsang's hotel. Now, Wilson Kipsang was banned for four years for missing three tests. Um, now, I, I argue, I joke to people, I have no idea why he missed three tests, but I will say it was at the end of his career. So maybe he was just getting slack and didn't care. I don't know. In fact, I will openly say I have no idea about what happened there and there might've been more to it. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, these whereabouts that anti-doping is getting much more um, uh, prominent, maybe the word that they're, they're really uh, shifting gears now to, to try and crack down on doping. And if you miss three tests in a year and because your whereabouts is wrong, then you'll get banned. So yep. you have to, you have to be really, the, man, the managers have to be making sure their athletes are, are all over that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I mean, look, you, re- you report your own whereabouts in the app, but nonetheless, the managers need to be able to to know where you are as well. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining, David. Um, we got a well, we got a few more interesting topics coming up in the next few episodes. Um, I always forget to say this, but you always remember. If you've been enjoying our podcast so far, we'd love for you to to give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I don't think Google Podcasts you can, but if you if if you can, then please give us a review, whatever you think we deserve. Of course, we we'd love a we'd love a good one. Uh, if you have any ways uh, that you think that we could uh, or improve or anything that you think that we can talk about, do send a message into the Pro Running News Podcast Instagram account DM. We check them every day. And uh, yeah, until next time. Thank you.